This is episode 57 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore Events Podcast. We're continuing with the 2010 Annual Enrichment Conference, Behold the Church, Gospel Communities on Mission. This is session two, Tuesday morning with Jeff Vanderstel. Good morning. There we go. All right. It's good to be with you. My name is Jeff Vanderstelt, and like I said earlier, I'm one of the pastors and, and teachers at Soma Communities. Uh, my wife and I were led to Tacoma, Washington, about six, a little bit over six years ago to begin to form a core of a new church, and we've been blessed to see God, uh, see that church multiply, uh, and it's it's been a real privilege. I, I don't know if, how many of you uh, sit back every once in a while and just go like, why me? Why do I get to do this? This just doesn't seem right. And I was that that uh, child who grew up in a, a Christian home. I was the second child and four boys, so you can all feel for my mom now. And um, and I, I now get it, um, raising kids of my own. But uh, I was that, that child that just seemed like he was never going to turn out right. I was always pushing on everything, always kind of you know stepping outside the limits and the one that my I probably led my mom to be a prayer more than any of my brothers, and I often found her on her knees praying for me, and I thank God for those prayers. Uh, but uh, I remember the day when God made it very clear that he was calling me into uh, more full-time vocational ministry as a pastor, and um, I had been going to school uh, to get ready for law school, and that was going to be my trajectory. And uh, I came back home and told my parents what had happened, and, uh, and my brother was out of the home at this point, the one that's just about a year and a half younger than me. And uh, I ended up getting involved in my first position in a youth ministry and served in youth ministries for about 14 years as a youth pastor. And I've been doing church planting for a little bit over uh, six now, six and a half, actually about seven, because I helped another guy plant a church. And my younger brother came to me a few years into ministry, and he said to me, um, you don't deserve this. I watched how you lived. He said, either you're a hypocrite and you're pulling the wool over everyone's eyes right now and pretending to be somebody you're not, or you're, you, somebody changed you, God changed your life. He said, but I'm watching you because I'm not convinced. We hadn't been living close enough for him to see my life, and so we get times together, and after you know several of those visits and me just proclaiming Jesus and giving Jesus credit and, and being overwhelmed with, as I, I was singing the song, I was like, he paid my debt. He paid my debt. And I, I want to start with, you know, I told my brother, I said, you just got to, I, I don't know how to convince you other than I'm a new person. And you're going to have to see it in my life. You're going to have to see me live differently. And you're going to have to see a different center. It's not about me anymore. It's about him. And, and I remember that the day when he came to me and he said, I'm convinced you're a different person. You're not the same brother that used to be, and I praise God for that. And I want to start there because that's really what we're all longing for for every person in our church, right? Is that they would choke up when they talk about Jesus and what he's done to change their life. And I think one of the things that I'm most pressed with right now in terms of the church in North America is I think we've forgotten what we have. When I travel and I speak and help other churches wrestle through how do we help our churches become more intentional about the gospel and more oriented around the mission, 
Um, I'm often struck by how, how little they talk about Jesus. I'm often surprised by their surprise that the church wouldn't want to give their life for Jesus. I remember I was speaking at a conference a while back, and I, I said to the pastor, I said, you guys would be surprised what the church can do. You'd be surprised that when people love Jesus and they understand what he's done for them, how motivated they will be to lay down their life and everything for his sake and the mission. And one of the pastors came up to me afterwards. He said, when you said you'd be surprised at what the church can do, and I know what you meant, you meant that every single person in the church could be a gospel minister in the church and in the city they live in. I got to be honest, I didn't, I don't believe that. And I, I think that's a shame. That somehow we've bought into the idea that church is merely a place people gather. That it's an event on Sunday for a couple hours a week. That the idea that people would rearrange their whole lives for Jesus and His mission and every decision and every thought would be about what do I do to further the fame of Jesus and see His glory expand in all the earth. When, when that's not normal in the church... We've forgotten who we are. Pete said last night, I don't want to plan a church service. I want to plan a church. And there is a difference. There's a difference. If all you're doing is running a two-hour event on Sunday, you haven't bought into the idea of what the church really is. That's just not enough. Don't you agree? And so last night when Mark said, let's, let's talk about what we affirm, I just want to clarify, affirmation does not equal mental assent or verbal profession. Affirmation means you build your whole life around these realities that you say to be true. So it's easy to look on, on the, the screens and go, yes, we should be devoted to the making of disciples. Does that get reflected in the life of every person in your church? Or is that primarily a good thing on paper? I want us to ask two questions as I'm speaking today and as we work through the materials I'm going to work through. We're going to look at the book of Acts so you can turn there. But what I want you, I want you to hear is these two questions. One, as I go through this, I want you to ask, is this reflective of our church? And by church, please, please make sure you don't translate church as the pastors and leaders or paid staff. I want you to think the people that belong to this local congregation. So when I say, is this true of our church, don't think, what do we do on Sunday, or what do, we, what do I do when I lead, or whatever it may be. I want you to think, is this true of our people, when you think of church? The second thing I want you to do, as, you, as we work through this today, is ask yourself, what needs to change in me first? Because uh, the tendency will be if I ask, well, as our, our people do this, go, yeah, God, you just gave me the worst people. I mean, come on, I can't help it. I mean, they're just, they're like mules, you know, come on. And, uh, and God seemed to be okay using really broken, weak people to see people's lives changed and see people mobilized to do unbelievable work. And we're going to look at Acts to see what that looks like. And as I do this, I want, I read Acts as I, I think 
So as, I, as most scholars, I think, do, they read it, they know it's a historical narrative, but it's not written to be primarily a historical narrative. If it was, there would be a lot more detail about all the events. And you know, at one point, they go from the first few chapters, Luke, as he's writing, to it seems very detailed, almost like daily. And then it goes to big swaps of information you know, in, in several verses. And so you know, he's not just trying to say, I want you to know every single detail about what happened along the way as the church was getting started. But rather, what I want you to understand is it is a historical narrative to make sure, as he's speaking to Theophilus, that I give you an orderly account. And he starts off his book, or his the second book, Acts. He says, in the first book, I wrote all that Jesus began to do and teach, implying that this is the all that Jesus is continuing to do and teach by his spirit through the church. He's alive. He's still building his church. He's here right now. And he's still going to build his church even amongst us today as we're here. So uh, Luke wants to make sure there's an orderly account of how Jesus does build his church by his spirit through his people. So I want to encourage us to read the book of Acts, not merely as a historical account, but as a very strong informing account of what we ought to think about doing. What we should see, as Mark said last night, is normative. Now, there's some people go, yeah, but that was the first century, so culturally, we can't just say let's do what they did. When people say let's be a, a first century church or an Acts 2 church, just remember that was in a culture, a time, a place, which I agree. And so we have to be mindful of that. Others will say, well, that was a particular time. It was a, some of you even would say it's a particular dispensation of how God worked in a unique way in that time. If that's your perspective, I grant that as well, but just make sure we read the rest of the Bible where Paul says to Timothy, all scriptures God breathed and it's profitable for, for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and training in righteousness. So as we read this, we have to say, God, what do you want us to know about what the church should look like as it's being faithful to the gospel and the mission you sent her on? And that's what I want us to do today. Now, there's no way I'm going to be able to teach through all of Acts, so I'm just going to look at some big picture stuff. Now, one thing I think is important to do as you start is pay attention to the order of the story. I, I don't know if you have been one of these people. I, I was at one point, too, where it's like, I just want to be an Acts 2 church. Ever heard people say that? In fact, I would say in the 80s and 90s, that was probably one of the most dominant phrases and probably one of the most popular teachings is let's look at Acts 2, 42 through 47, and let's talk about how we can be an Acts church. But I want to offer to you, first of all, I want to offer to you that I think that's a great thing to have a church look like that. I mean, think about it. In just a very short few verses, what you see is you see a people who are devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. That means they're actually doing it. That would be a good thing in our church, wouldn't it? If we didn't just teach, but people actually did what we taught. I had a time a while back where I was sitting down with some leaders, and at SOMA, we don't just do Bible studies. We do study the Bible, but we don't make it our goal to study, period. Uh, in fact, I think that's the new form of self-righteousness is Bible knowledge. And it's a new way of filling your life so you feel like you're doing good as a Christian because the more you study your Bible, the more you feel good about yourself. And I know that's a hard word, but as I meet with Christians, and a lot of times I'll sit down with them and say, yeah, we're just, we're just going to do more Bible study. And I'll say, okay, hold on. What did you study last? Okay, you studied Philippians. Have the same mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Now let's talk about what that looks like. When's the last time you guys went out and served selflessly and, and became incarnate in the world in such a way that the world saw you lay down your life for them? I mean, is, did you do that? Because you probably did if you read Philippians, right? You studied that. 
And you probably devoted yourself to one another in such a way that you were always encouraging each other and you probably were really with each other a lot, denying yourself continually like Jesus did for Like, you probably do that, right? And they're regular, they'll just, it's like blank stares. They're like, is that why we're supposed to study the Bible? To do it? Yes. James says, don't be merely hearers of the word, but doers. Jesus said, those who hear my words and don't put them in practice are like people who build on sand. And the storms come in, they're going to be washed away. It's not good theology in the, in, in the head or good proclamation of our theology with our lips that's going to make you sound. It's actually believing it. And your belief in it shows up in how you live. When I'm with our church regularly, I'll say, I know what you believe by how you live because what you do is based upon what you believe fundamentally. And so here you have a people devoted to the apostles' teaching. They're, they're giving themselves to it. They're devoted to the fellowship. They're devoted to the breaking of bread. Prayers. I, mean, I don't need to read it because you guys know this. When, every time you read this, you go, could we have that still today? Would people really sell what they have and give to the poor? And would they live life close together in such a way that they know each other well enough that they can speak truth into each other's lives? Would we help each other really live this out in the everyday life so it's not just on Sunday? I mean, could that happen? And every time I read Acts 2, I go, man, I just wish we could write this about the church today. And I think some of us can. Some of us are in that place where we go, that's very true. But let me ask you, how many of you have started in Acts 2 and went, beyond, went from that point on and you didn't go backwards to Acts 1? See, if, if you were to say, I want to be an Acts church and I want to make sure our church is doing these things, so this now becomes the new prescription on how to have a really good church. If we just get together and we devote ourselves to the teaching and we fellowship and we break bread and we, we sell what we have and we give to the poor, then we'll be a great church. And I don't want you to hear this as a prescription for a great church. I want you to hear this as a description of a church who is first and foremost devoted to the gospel and the mission of Jesus. And this was the outcome of that. So you can't have an Acts 2 church if you don't have an Acts 1 gospel and mission. And a lot of people, what they do is they go, I'm going to let this be a prescription, so we're going to make sure we do the things in chapter 2, 42 through 47. We're going to make sure we, we put it into our schedule to do these things. And what we end up doing is we think, if I program it in, we will become it. And I just want you to, to make sure you, you hear this. That's a works-based church. That's a church that says, if we do, then we will become. Instead of, if we believe and trust and obey, then this is what we become. This is what we look like when we believe the gospel. This is what we look like when we come together around Jesus' mission. This is the result of our faith in Jesus, not the way we get people to look like a healthy church. See, in fact, if you do that, what you'll end up with is a man-centered church, oftentimes devoid of the gospel power, because it'll be us trying to get people to do and be this, so there'll be a good, healthy church. It's like a doctor saying, I know you're dying of cancer, but just act like you're healthy. So that I'm going to treat the fundamental problem, that is, you're sick. And in the church, we've got to go back to, to Acts 1. We've got to start with the gospel. In fact, if, if you're thinking, I want to be our church to be a gospel-centered community, a, a community where it's all about Jesus, it's all about his gospel, it's all about his mission, everyone's realigning their lives radically for it, then you've got to make sure you are a gospel-centered people. You have to. Look at Acts 1. Jesus 
So as, as he's writing, he says, I wrote to you all that Jesus began to do and teach, verse 2, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given his commands to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles whom he had chosen, to them he presented himself alive after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. What you're going to see Luke do over and over and over and over and over again throughout all of his narrative is give you little gospel nutshells over and over and over and over again, just so that you never forget it's always about Jesus. And then he says, he, he kind of gives this shorthand. He appeared to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. If you want to know, get a kind of an understanding of what that looked like, go to tw Luke 24, his first book. It's after Jesus' resurrection. Jesus uh, brings him around, and, he, and he's, he's, you know, he's on the road to Emmaus. He's talking to these guys. He says, oh, foolish one, verse 25. O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. How do you know that you have a gospel-centered people? They know how to read their Bible as a Christian. Meaning, every time they open the Bible, no matter where it is, they're thinking about how it points to Jesus how it gets fulfilled in Jesus, how it leads them to the cross, either backwards because they're looking back to the cross from the epistles or forwards because they're looking forward to the cross in the Old Testament. And if, if, you're, if you're going like, I want our church to be a gospel people, you're going to have to teach your Bible in such a way that you never avoid Jesus in every text. Those of you who are preachers and teachers, if you teach through a passage and the, the pinnacle of that passage the, the hope of that passage, the, the most powerful point of that passage doesn't land on Jesus and what he's accomplished through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension and sending of his spirit, then you're not preaching the gospel. You're not teaching the scriptures as a Christian. You're teaching them with maybe a moralistic bent. The Bible says it. Everybody, let's just go do it. And you know what everyone does? Everyone picks up their bootstraps and go, we're going to try harder this time. And most people just get more filled with shame and guilt because what you're actually telling them to do is work harder for Jesus instead of saying, you know what? Jesus did it for you so that in him he might do it through you. And, and what Jesus wants them to understand is, you know, all the scriptures you've read, every one of them was about me. If you're wanting to grow more in this area, I'd recommend you do some study under guys like Tim Keller, uh, uh, Edmund Clowney, uh, Graham Goldsworthy, some of the guys who, uh, Brian Chapel, guys who've said, let's make sure we learn how to teach the Bible in such a way that Jesus is always the hero and the hope. If your people walk out, I was sitting in a service one time and and uh, a church was with my brother, actually, and I was watching him, and he's not doing real well in his spiritual life at this stage in his life. This is when I was with them. And, and the, the pastor did a great job of bringing illustrations and, and talking about the seeds and the sower, sowing them in the soil and all this. It was actually, I think, rhetorically, it was really a well-put-together message. But the whole point of the message was, you have got to grow. Start growing. And I'm watching my brother, and, 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 and it was even, even I think his intent was to say it's Jesus who makes us grow, but the, the feeling of it at the end was, get your act together, people. And I watched my brother, he started sitting, he was sitting up straight like this as we were teaching, as the guy was preaching, and slowly, this is what happened to his body. And then he was like this, 
And I wondered if the pastor's thinking he's doing a good job because people are full of remorse. And I'm thinking, I know what's going on in my brother right now. He's full of guilt and shame. I asked him afterwards, I said, so how did that hit you? And he said, man, I suck. And he said, I, I try hard every week. It's never enough. I thought to myself, that's not good news. He needs to hear that Jesus is the one who was put in the soil. He's the seed that got sown. And he's the one who died. And he's the one who sprung up new life. And it's in him that we can have new life. And only in him can we die to ourselves. And only when we look to the cross do we have any kind of motivation that's going to change us to make us different people and transform our hearts. That's what needed to be preached. And I've sat through so many messages when I sit and I'm trying to be as gracious as I can, but I don't hear Jesus anymore. And he's not the hero. That's why I love it when these guys leading worship. You know, I wanted to just start clapping when I saw those baptisms. Going, going, that's right, he paid it all. That's why they can do that. Let me ask, is your church, are they enamored with Jesus? Are they overwhelmed with Jesus? Are they overwhelmed with his grace? Do they hear him preached regularly? Every week do they walk out and go, I'm not the hero, he is. I can't do this, he will. I don't have the power, but he's given it to me by his spirit. Is that what they walk out with? And they walk out with, I've got to try harder. I've got to work more. I feel rotten one more week. And when they go to communion, they're confessing sin. And it's not like they're celebrating Jesus. They're just going like, I, I'm terrible. Why do I even come to the table? The gospel's good news. It's good news for those who are weary and heavy laden. You come to him, he gives you rest, he carries your burden, he does the work through you. It's not your power, it's his. And all the way through Acts, Luke just keeps saying, no, don't miss it, it's him, it's him. In fact, Jesus, what does he say to them? He says, he brings them together, he says in verse, in verse 7, after they ask, well, when are you going to restore the kingdom? And they're like, don't worry about that. That's not your deal. Some of you think you've got to make the world a different place. Jesus is going to make it new. He wants to work through us. I don't want to downplay our need to do good works and be out there involved in our communities. Please don't hear that. But if you feel like the weight of the world is on your shoulders and the people in your church feel that way too, and you put it on their shoulder every week, you're not actually teaching the gospel. And so he says, it, the Father's taking care of that. It's fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Listen to that. You will be. He's not even saying, would you please do something? He's saying, this is what you're going to be. And then he says, wait. Wait for power. Wait. Luke records it too in the end of his gospel. Same thing. He tells them, wait. If you go back over to to verse 24, after Jesus, verse, or chapter 24, 44, these are my words, I've spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, thus is it written, and then he goes through, Christ should suffer, third day rise from the dead, repentance and forgiveness of sins be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I'm sending you the promise of my Father upon you, but stay until the, in the city until you're clothed with power on high. Do you know what gospel-centered people do? Not only do they know the gospel, let, let me just back that up. I, I, I want to encourage you to try something. In your church, some, maybe this week, 
walk up to someone and say, okay, if you had to explain the gospel, what would you tell somebody? Just see how many people in your church know how to walk through who Jesus is, what he's done, how they respond in faith, and then what he accomplishes, what he does, and what he does to make them new. Like, see if they know that. That would just be a good starting point. I'm learning to just rehearse that with the missional community I'm with. I'm saying, okay, before we go, can we just remind ourselves of what the gospel is again before we go any further? Luke seemed to do that over and over and over again to Theophilus, so he would never miss it as he articulated what they were saying about Jesus. But then Jesus says, I want you to wait. So it's not just the gospel message that we need to know and know how to articulate, but we've got to know we've got to have gospel power to do it. I love the fact that Jesus is basically saying, I'm going to tell you all about the kingdom and, and that, about my reign and about how I've accomplished it through my life, death, resurrection, and ascension, and now the sending of my spirit. But I want you to not think it's just about the message. I also want you to understand it's about what the message, what the work of the cross has accomplished so you can have the power of God to do it. Paul says in Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God to save. And then he uses language like it's it, because it's for faith, from faith, the righteous shall live by faith. Do you remember that? And then that little verse. It's like in that little verse you get this picture that the gospel is the whole of life. That it's not just a starting point of belief, but it informs every single thing we do. And, and Jesus wants them to understand, you can't do what I'm calling you to do. You can't do it. I'm going to send you to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts, but I'm telling you, you can't do this. You're going to have to wait for power from on high. And so he tells them to wait. This is one of the hardest things for me, by the way. Last night when Dee said, you know, he like, was going to tell his church to wait 10 years until they plant, I was, I was just going, are you kidding me? 10 years? My church is lucky if they get a month notice. You know? And uh, I just thought, you know, there's a, there's a godly man. There's a patient man. There's a man who knows his people, cares for him well. He's a good shepherd. I have a hard time waiting. I don't know about you. I mean, if you know much about D, he's a man who's committed to prayer. It's probably because he knows God can work even when he's not. And uh, these people, you know, just think about it. They just saw Jesus killed in Jerusalem. He's telling them, now go to Jerusalem and be my witnesses. Are you kidding? We just saw you mutilated. We saw you beat. We saw people spit on you and mock on you and tear your flesh apart. We saw you suffer the worst death possible, and you're telling us to go back? You're telling us that that's where it starts? That's where the mission begins? you got to know that they were anticipating dying. you got to know that they weren't thinking, oh, we'll just set up a nice building and have people show up on Sunday for two hours, and, and we'll make sure everybody feels good, and... The air is just right, so music is right, and it's not too long because we'd hate to keep people too long and make them you know, inconvenience their Sunday afternoon. And They weren't thinking that. They're going, we're going to go die for Jesus, and in the process, we hope others will be willing to die for Jesus too because he died for us. That's what they're thinking. And so it makes sense then that they would gather together and pray, doesn't it? Doesn't it make sense that they'd be up in, a, in this room just going, like, God help us, God save us. We know we're probably going to die, but you at least keep us alive long enough that we can proclaim Jesus to as many people as possible. 
Would you just it empower us? Because we don't know what to say. We don't know how to say it. But Jesus said, you give us words when we stand in front of the authorities. Would you do that again? We saw Jesus be able to do it. Is it possible that Jesus will still do it through us? Because that's what he said he'd do. He said, I'll be with you to the end of the age. And when they saw Jesus do it, they had to have believed, I think, that maybe he was still going to do it. Don't you think? Is it possible that they were sitting there thinking, Jesus, please come like you said you would by your spirit so that you will do this again and we'll just be used by you. That would be great. I'd love it if our churches would just stop being confident in ourselves. And we'd be more confident in the power of the gospel to save. And not just the, the proclamation of the gospel, though that's absolutely necessary, but the power of the gospel, the spirit of God that's been given to us because of the work of Christ. Now, this is what I love. What happens to the church? Acts 2. Spirit does come, fills every believer. Now, most people, what they do, and I've, I've, I'm, I'm one of these, as I remember used to, I used to teach this, you, you emphasize either one, you emphasize kind of two bookends of this passage. You either focus all on the Spirit's coming, which you do need to do because it is the fulfillment of, of prophecy. It is because of what Jesus did that we now have God dwelling in us by His Spirit. I mean, it's remarkable. You have to teach it. But if you're really charismatic, that's where you end. You know, you just teach that. And if you're really gospel preaching centered, you get to Peter quickly and you go, but look at what Peter did. He stood up and he proclaimed the gospel, which you got to do too. But I've, I don't know if I've ever heard anybody teach the middle part where it says, when the Spirit came, every member of the church was filled with the Spirit and proclaimed the gospel, proclaimed the mighty deeds of God. With, in ways that everybody could understand. You ever thought about that? This is the church. This is normative, just so we're clear. Like what Mark said last night, normative is every single member of the church is proclaiming the mighty deeds of God to people in ways they can understand. That's what the Spirit empowers you to do. Don't get caught up on just tongues. Look at the results of the tongues. The gospel is proclaimed by every single believer. And then what does Peter do? This is what I think is the job of pastors. If, we, if this was happening, can you imagine all week long, your people are just all week long, they're telling about Jesus, they're proclaiming the gospel, talking about the mighty deeds of God in ways that people can understand, empowered by the Spirit. And then on Sunday, they've got in tow with them literally all the people they've been telling the gospel with all week. And these people are still going like, okay, pastor, explain this to us. What is going on? Are these people crazy? You know, Peter, what they did to Peter is like, are they, these guys drunk? What's up? What is happening? And then Peter gets up and he says, let me just make sure you understand this. This is all about Jesus. This is because of what he did, what he accomplished, what he did to send his spirit to be in us. This is what, this, what you're seeing and hearing, clear, seeing and hearing, and this is the, the way that your church becomes, is, you know it's a gospel church, gospel-centered church, is that you see the gospel being worked out in everyday life and you hear it being proclaimed. You see demonstration, a life radically different than everybody else. And you see proclamation, a proclamation of the fact that it's all about Jesus and because of Jesus. And then Peter's job is just to get up and go, just so you don't misunderstand this, don't give them any credit. Give Jesus credit. And you too, you who killed him, can also be saved from your sins. And you know, he does that over and over again. Remember the, the lame man who gets healed at the temple uh, gates and he, he runs in the temple leaping and praising God. And, and the people look at, John, at Peter and John as though it's them who did it. And Peter says, no, 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 man, don't look at us. 
This is not by our power or our piety that this has happened. It's not our godliness that made this happen. It's not our strength or abilities or, or talents that made this happen. This is the power of God. This is in the name of Jesus. And by faith in his name, this man has been healed. And you too can have the same kind of power. And he says there's a salvation in no other name but given under men, to men under heaven other than Jesus that, by which you might be saved. That's it. And, and Peter just says, make sure you don't miss it. And that happens all the way through Acts. Remember all the times when people want to give men credit? And what do they do? They say, no, no, don't worship us. At one point they tear their garments. No, you can't do this. Don't. This is what he came to save you from, was the worship of humans. And I, I think, what if, what if our church so believed the gospel but they, that they weren't impressed with you and me anymore? They didn't depend on you and me anymore like they have. What if the church was so dependent on God that everywhere they went, they were proclaiming the mighty deeds of God, and we were just one of them in a unique role to make sure everyone knew it was all about Jesus, and we just keep equipping and training them in the gospel so they have more confidence to go out and live it and share it? Is it when you think of your church, is this what you think of? Like Every single member in our church is a gospel minister out on the streets, and every one of them is sharing the gospel wherever they go. Is that what you think of? I don't want to discourage you because you can go like, dang it, man. Oh, I wish that was the case. I know you do. But let me just encourage you, it will never be the case if the gospel isn't central. It will never be the case. In fact, what you're communicating is not so much your words, but what you do with your words and how you communicate them. So, for instance, if you continually teach a very moralistic kind of teaching that they've got to go out and work harder. You're fundamentally telling them it's up to you to do this. They're not going to have confidence in Jesus. Why would they ever proclaim him then? They're going to proclaim the technique that did it or the methodology or the program. They're going to boast in their church because their church is doing such a great job of, of bringing people to Jesus, and they're going to have confidence in the church instead of in Jesus working through the church. You know, they're also not going to grow in this if you continue to be the person who everybody needs to go to to get the answers or to be taken care of. I, I often say when I gather that uh, church is suffering from this idea that, that um, all of us love to be breastfeeding mothers and never have anybody get off the... Right? That's a horrible image, isn't it? But the writer of Hebrews doesn't have any problem using that image. You should be eating meat by now, but you're still drinking milk. And the literal translation needs to be you're still sucking on the breast. Now, hopefully you go like, that's sick. I mean, I can't, an old guy up there front, you know, you know, come on now. <laughs> or even me, you know, like, come on. And yet, how many of our churches are believing the idea of the church is that they come to hear you preach and feed them every week, and they need you to do it week after week after week? I had an older gentleman in our when we first started our church, he was a church, in a church for many, many years, and the most he had ever done, and, and he was a faithful servant, but he, all he'd ever been asked to do in the church was be an usher, you know, and, and he just he was a faithful usher and did it for years, and remember when he joined us, the first thing he said to me when we were sitting down talking about what the church is going to be like, he said, Pastor, I just want you to know it's your job to feed me. And you can find scripture to support that, right? Peter, feed my sheep, and you know, shepherds feed the flock under your care. I mean, yeah, we're supposed to. But what did he mean? He meant, I don't want to grow up. 
Because that's what he'd been told all his life, that he wasn't going to ever grow up. The church, without knowing it, communicated to him, you'll never be able to do what I do. And I said to him, I, his name is Ray, good friend of mine, and I said, Ray, um, I'm going to ask you this week to read your Bible. I'm gonna ask, I said, do you know how to read your Bible? He said, yeah. I said, okay. I'm going to ask you to ask the Spirit to, to speak to your life because, because of the power of the gospel, now his Spirit dwells in you, and you don't need a teacher anymore. It's not that we don't teach. It's important, but you don't need me to be the primary teacher. You have the Spirit as your primary teacher. And I said, so I'm going to ask you to listen to the Spirit. I'm going to ask you to write down everything that he tells you this week. I'm going to ask you to just submit to whatever he tells you to do because if whatever he tells you to do, he'll give you the power to do it, so obey him. And I promise you, we were looking at Luke 4 and the, you know, Jesus at the, at the well, and, and then afterwards the disciples come to him and they're saying, hey, you should be hungry. Why don't you have any food? What's going on? He says, you don't know anything about the food I got. My food is to do the will of my Father who sent me. So I said, Ray, I promise you this week you will be better fed if you will do that. If you'll trust God in that this week than you've ever been in any church service you've ever been a part of. And he came to me, and he didn't believe me, of course, but he said, I'll just give it a try. And, and he came back to me and that week, and he said, you're right. This was the most amazing week I've ever had. God spoke to me through his word. I obeyed what he did, and it was the most amazing week. I've, been ne I've never been so well fed. I said, just keep doing that, Ray, and I promise you, God's going to use you for mighty things. Sure enough, Ray went from being a guy who could only think he could be an usher in a church to being a guy who eventually joined a, a local mission. He learned how to do gospel counseling to guys who were getting off of drug addiction and trying to get off the streets. And he led so many guys to Christ. Our church just started getting filled with all these homeless guys hanging out that he'd bring. And, and then he went on to do more and more work like that. And he's still doing it. He's still with us. And here's a guy who spent 30 years ushering. Because he thought the normative of the church was just pulling off events. And he was going to help do that. Now, I don't want you to hear that I think it's wrong to have us do events or gatherings or to have people usher. He's a servant. Ray was a servant. But no one called him to anything else. See, when you believe the gospel, you believe that God can use a guy like Ray, who was a broken sailor who had a bad mouth, to proclaim Jesus. And he does. I remember when a, a girl came to visit our community that did a, an internship with us last summer. And um, I, I, at the end of the summer, I said, how was your time with us? And she said, she said, it was good, but it was different than what I expected. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, I got to be honest with you. You guys talk about Jesus a lot. And I'm like, that's not a that's a bad thing she goes well i gotta be honest she comes from a very big church that i used to serve at and uh, she said i'm not used to that so it made me feel quite uncomfortable to be honest how much you talk about jesus how important jesus is to everything how he shows up in every conversation you have they just, you guys are all about jesus and i realized i'm not and i've been going to church all my life and i became all about the events and the programs and the things we do and not about jesus and I said, well, how, where are you at now? And she said, I think I might have came to faith this summer. And this is one of my concerns in the church right now. I have a feeling, and I, I, there's no proof of this, other than the people that come to my church that, that are coming from churches that I, are clearly not saved. I have a feeling that, to, to some degree, in North America, people have bought into the idea that if they're involved in the church, they're Christians. 
that if they do the programs and the events and they show up, that they're actually good Christians. And what she had bought into that was a works gospel. That high involvement in the church equates to God will accept me. And she didn't know Jesus. She did lots of things in his name. She didn't know him. And so you know what happens when you know you have a gospel-centered church? People talk about Jesus a lot. They're not ashamed of him because it's the best news possible. Why would you be ashamed of that? You just talk about him all the time. And And you don't put your trust in your programs or your events or even your gifted communicators. You just go like, man, if God doesn't show up that guy up front, we have no hope. I don't care how good he can speak. Jesus has to change hearts. And if Jesus isn't exalted, people won't be drawn to him. So he better exalt Jesus this morning. And so when you're praying for your pastor, you're going, God, please let him bring Jesus as the hero this morning. And let us just be amazed with Jesus. And then afterwards, when the guy, people come to you and they go, good job, pastor, well done on your sermons. You go, let me just ask you, were you impressed with Jesus this morning? And are you going to do whatever he says because you love him so much? Because that's when you know you got a gospel-centered church. When Jesus is the most impressive thing you got, and everything you do is about Jesus, and he gets talked about all the time. I'm going to talk more about this tonight in terms of how do you develop a church like that. But the the second thing is, not only do you have a a gospel-centered people, but you've got to have a mission-oriented people. Look, Acts 1.8 obviously is a very key verse for the whole understanding of, of the book of Acts. Jesus says you will receive power, and he's referring to the Spirit when he comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Do you hear what he's saying to them? You're going to witness to the world about me. And this work isn't done until every single person on the planet has heard about me. Mark said that last night. One of our affirmations should be, we know that our job is to proclaim Jesus to every single living being alive. Well, what you have here, if you look at Acts 2 and you jump ahead and you go, man, I I want that kind of church. I want them to be like that. Do you know what Acts 2 is the result of? People radically reorienting their lives around the gospel and the mission of Jesus. That's what it is. It's not a prescription. It's a description of people who radically reorient their lives around the mission of making disciples who make disciples so that the whole earth will be filled with the glory of God through the people of God as they become witnesses of Jesus Christ. That's, that's That's the picture. And so just imagine, I don't know if you do this, but imagine if every single thing that people are doing in their life, you ask them to question in regards to whether or not it is both in submission to the truth of Jesus and the gospel and to the, the mission that he's called them to. These people radically reoriented their lives around the mission. What this means as church leaders is one thing that we've got to do in the church is we've got to help people re-embrace their missionary identity. Wesley Newbigin came back from India having done all kinds of great missionary work and he got back to, to England and he looked at the church and the church was just dying and suffering. And he said, the reason why is because you forgot that you're missionaries to your own culture. The church has got to remember we're the missionary people of God sent by God. And every single person in your church is a missionary if they're a believer. Because God calls them and then in their baptism... He's saying, you're a new creation, set apart for good works, and he sends them. And In some ways, their baptism ought to be their commission service. Like, you were dead, but now you're alive, and now your whole life is about telling everybody about Jesus and living for his glory. 
And this early, the early church, they, they reordered their whole life around the mission. These guys left their jobs. They left their families. I was talking to Randy, a, a guy that I'm discipling right now. He's with, us, with me this week. Uh, this morning he was talking about Adirondack. Judson, uh, the great missionary. How do you say his name? There you go, Judson. And um, and uh, he's talking about how his, he literally, he, he lost his family. His kids died. His wife died. He has to show up with a baby and go, I need to find someone to breastfeed this baby because he's so devoted to the mission of Jesus. And I sit there, and I, even in my church, I sit with families with young children, of which I'm one of them, and they go, you know, we just can't, we're just, you know, our kids, we, we can't do this. I mean, it takes a lot of time, and, you know, we're real busy. And I'm like, these people lost their kids for this. And we're, we're concerned about our kids getting a 4.0. And we think it's suffering if they all of a sudden have to compromise, maybe not getting a perfect grade point average or, or getting a, the letter in a sport or whatever it may be. And I'm not saying those things are bad, but what has become most important to us? Is it the gospel of Jesus and the mission he's called us to? And are you calling your people to reorient their whole life around this mission? At SOMA, when we help people get started starting new missional communities, the first thing we ask them is we go, first of all, we want to make sure you know your gospel well. You can articulate it. You can apply it to all of life, to finances, to sex, to marriage, to, to school, to education, to work, to community restoration. You know how to take the gospel of Jesus and explain how that affects everything. So that's one thing we make sure we do. But the second thing we, have, we do is we say, have you thought how you're going to reorder your life around this mission and call people to reorder their lives around this mission of reaching a particular people group in our city with you? And they sit down, and when they rest, work through who it is they're going to reach, they put together a covenant where they say, we believe the gospel, and this is true in Jesus Christ, and this is how we want to reorder our whole lives around this mission that he's called us to. And I want to tell you, there's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears in that process because half of what you're doing is bringing the gospel to bear on all the reasons why people won't live that way. And that's why we ask them to do it, because people are going to bring up all the excuses, and every excuse gets answered with Jesus. And I don't mean just like a face, you know, like, well, Jesus is the answer. I mean, why Jesus, who was rich, became poor, so in our poverty we might become rich. Let's give him everything. Jesus, who, who became a servant of all so that we become children of God, has now called us to be servants of the king as we serve the world and lay down our lives for them. Let's lay down our lives. And on and on and on. And you just keep bringing the gospel to bear on every issue. Well, we're afraid, you know, our kids, you know, I don't know if it, it might be dangerous. We're going to have people in our house, you know, exercise hospitality. What if there's people that are not, not safe coming around and go, Jesus was willing to be beat and killed for you. And he's the king of all kings and all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And he's with you. So he will give you the authority and power to overcome. And he is your protector, isn't he? Do you trust him or do you trust yourself more than him? And we just ask them to reorient their lives around the gospel and what it, around the mission. And you know what it does? It raises all of their unbelief. You guys have experienced this, right? You take people on a mission trip, and, and you know, a week long or two. And I, like, I hate mission trips, to be honest with you, because it's like everyone tries to pretend to be serious about Jesus for a week. Now, I think they can be great, you know, a great immersion into what it would look like if we were all the time. But it usually never translates back home to doing it all the time. 
because we, we haven't reordered our churches to be missionary people. We, in some ways, have protected our people from being missionaries, and we try to do everything we can to make it easier for them so they don't need the gospel. And, and so every time I go on a mission trip, or when I did, I, now I'm just on one all the time because, right, we're all missionaries, so it doesn't end. I'm on a mission trip right today. But I remember going on them, and, you know, people pray like crazy because they're freaked out. Right? You experience that? Like going, I've never seen like little boy or big men get down on their knees and just start shaking. God help us. You know, this is horrible. Like I need a cot. Come on. This is so uncomfortable. I can't even sleep at night. I'm so tired. Would you give me strength today? I don't even have the time. These people are driving me nuts. You know, and now you deal with reconciliation and love for one another and you die to yourself and you have to forgive one another probably 10 times a day because you're making each other so mad, you know. And, and, and you start living this way and you get down to the week and you, you feel like something formed that was so radically unique. It's like you don't want to leave it, right? Like you hated the idea when you got there of sleeping on the ground and doing all the work you're going to have to do. And there are days you're like, gosh, I wish this would end. And at the end you're like, I wish this would never end. Why? Because you experienced God break in. You experienced his power. You experienced a devotion to his word and a devotion to one another that was required to do the mission, right? I, I ran a marathon a few years ago. I've never run a race in my life. I only ran it because a guy challenged me to do it, and I'm a bit of a competitive guy. And I have a pride problem, obviously. And uh, I uh, decided to run this marathon, and I, I'm telling you, I... I started reading Runner's Magazine and, and learning about running shoes and how to avoid chafing, you know, and all that fun stuff. And, and I, I, you know, I, I got the right clothes, and I trained like I've never trained in my life or something. I mean, it was, I was regimented, trained, focused, gave myself to it. Why? Because I didn't want to die, right? I didn't want to run this race. I wanted, didn't want to make a fool out of myself and not finish, and I also didn't want to die because people do die running marathons. I didn't want either one of those to happen. But I knew that if I didn't train properly, there was no way I could run the race. When Paul says, run this race, he's talking about gospel people giving their lives to the mission of Jesus, and they are devoted to it to the point that they'll do whatever it takes to see Jesus use them for his glory. That's what's happening in Acts 2, 42-47 of people radically committed to the gospel, reorient their lives around the mission. I'll tell you what it starts to look like. One of our, our groups did this. They, they put their covenant together. They believed they were called to a particular people in a particular place. They began to talk about how their benevolence would be handled differently because they were going to take care of the needs of the people around them. They weren't going to go to a general offering to get benevolence. They were actually going to sacrifice for those in their neighborhood who needed help. They, they started to say, how do we reorder our week because we want to get in the flow of the life of this community because that's what missionaries do. They get in the flow of the life of the people they're trying to reach. They find out where they eat and what they do and what they celebrate and what were the things they love. And they join them in all that stuff. And then they started having parties and having people over and exercise hospitality. And I remember the one guy who was on the leadership team came to me one point and I knew he was disengaging from the mission. I said, what's up? He said, well, you know, I work in Redmond. At Microsoft and the, the commutes, you know, it's, it, I'm, I'm on the road a lot and I just don't have a lot of time to give to the mission. And, and I, I, said, I said, well, do you feel like God's calling you maybe to Redmond? And he said, no, I feel like I'm called to this area that I live in. And I said, okay, do you, do you believe that he's, he said, I think I'm supposed to make my mission though Microsoft. And I said, Microsoft? That's a company. Your mission isn't a company. Your mission is to make disciples. Who are you going to reach? 
Well, it's my coworkers. Okay, that's what you're doing in the, the everyday life. That's like reactive mission. Everybody should be doing that. But where are you going to realign your whole life for the purpose of the gospel to reach a group of people and call your family into it so your kids learn how to share the gospel and learn how to disciple people and they watch their dad do it and they see it in everyday life so they don't grow up thinking the church is the thing they go to on Sunday, but it's who they are and it's how they live all week long. How are you going to do that? So I don't know. I don't think I can. I said, wait a minute. Who are you trusting in? He said, well, my job won't let me. I said, is your job bigger than God? So what are you saying? You think I should quit my job? I said, no. What I'm saying is you ought to ask God to see if he can change it so you can spend more time in your mission. So he said, okay, I'll do that. And he started devoting himself to pray that God would move in whatever way he needed to free him up to be more effective in the mission God called him to. You know what happened? He got a job offer at another company in Lansing, Michigan, who said, you don't have to move to Lansing. We'll let you work from your house. And you only have to fly out at once a month to meet with us. But you can do everything from your home. Do you think God can change things to make his work get accomplished? He absolutely can. How many of you people in your church are praying those kinds of prayers? God, would you move heaven and earth to change my situation so that I can be more faithful to proclaim your gospel consistently in a particular place to a particular people so they can come to know you? I mean, what if those were the prayers our people were praying? I, uh, a while ago, we were talking about at SOMA um, a new thing that we were going to do because we change like every nine months. You can anticipate a change. And, uh, and uh, one of the ladies raised her hand. She said, is there ever going to be a day when we're just going to stop changing around here? She says, can we just like count on anything? And I said, um, no. The reformers, one of the things they committed themselves to was that we're always reforming. And I said, one thing I will promise you is that Jesus will not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The gospel will not change. The mission will not change. But our church will change so that we can align ourselves with the gospel because we're going to be transformed by it, so we're changing. God's changing us. And as we're getting changed, our church will clearly change because it's reflecting a changed people. And as we're a changed people and the culture is changing, we have to adapt the, the, the way we bring the gospel to that culture all the time because we're all going to have to realign your life regularly for the sake of the gospel and the mission. So you're going to change, we're going to change, and we're hoping our city's going to change as a result. So no, I can't tell you anything's not going to change other than Jesus, the gospel, and his mission. I don't want to give anybody any other hope. I don't want to stand up and say, you can always count on the fact that we will always meet at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings for the rest of our lives. No way. I don't want them to put their hope in a program. I want them to put their hope in Jesus, and I want them to be willing to realign their life for the sake of his mission. Now, the last thing, and I, I, I need to wrap up here. Um, these people were a, a multiplication-minded people. I'm not going to read all these passages, but I'll encourage you to look them up later. Um, there are six key markers to the book of Acts that lay out this commitment, or not the commitment, the effects, the, the outcome of these, these people being devoted to the gospel and reorienting their lives radically around the mission. And, and these are, this is where they're at. Acts 6-7, Acts 9-31, Acts 12-28, and Acts 16-5, Acts 19-20, and Acts 28-31. I'm just going to read one of them, but you're going to see the pattern happening over and over and over again. Verse, chapter 6, verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase in the number of the disciples, multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to Christ, or to the faith. This gets stated over and over and over again. Luke wants to make sure you understand the outcome that we're going for is many come to be saved. 
If it isn't normative that people are getting saved in our churches, that it isn't normative that people are coming to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ in our churches, something is wrong. Don't accept that. Don't just say that's the way it is. That is not the way it is. Not in the kingdom of God. God, when He makes something, He always puts in it the ability for it to reproduce. Think of the, the trees the, that had fruit that fall and produce after their kind. And He does the same thing with animals. And He does it with us. And wouldn't you think that the seed of Christ in each one of us giving us new birth would be a reproductive reality in us? And if we're not, we're unhealthy. If your church isn't seeing conversions regularly, and not just people coming to know Christ, but then it says many believed, and as it goes on, you look at all these markers, it says that it spread. It just it like took over the land like a virus. That's why Jesus says the kingdom is like, it's like this yeast, and it, it so, seems so in, insignificant, and yet it goes into the culture, and it just changes everything. People's lives get changed. And as you read the story, it's remarkable. Normal people do extraordinary things. And, and you see, it doesn't just start with the apostles because then they, they need help, you know, with some of the ministry of the widows. And, and you, you see Stephen and Philip and others getting appointed to do this work. And it's so cool because you think, okay, now they're waiting tables. No, look at what they do. They don't just wait tables. Stephen becomes the first martyr and while he's being killed, he just proclaims Jesus. But he's a table waiter. No, he's a minister of the gospel. It doesn't matter what he does. He's called to be a minister of the gospel. Philip, he gets out, he gets out there, and he knows his Bible now, and he knows how to point to Jesus in the text. And so you got this guy, you know, Ethiopian, going, can someone explain to me this passage in Isaiah? And he goes, let me tell you all about Jesus. Because, see, I know all about the gospel, and I know how to point to Jesus in any text, and I know how to take any circumstance and make Jesus the hero. And sure enough, Philip does that, and the eunuch comes to faith, and we, we know that there's throughout history a big change that happens in, in Egypt or in, in Africa because of this. And that guy goes and does something. Now, what does he get? All he gets is a basic gospel message, the Spirit of God, and he goes off and churches get started. It's ridiculous. How does that happen? The persecution breaks out on the church in Jerusalem and these people get spread everywhere. And it says everywhere they went, everybody but the apostles were scattered. They preached the gospel. And then you, you show up in Antioch and these these couple guys show up and everyone's talking to Jews, but they happen to go to the Hellenists and they begin to talk to them about the gospel and people believe and a church starts. And then what happens? They call Barnabas and they send Barnabas there, help us get this church form. And then what they do? Barnabas calls Paul because it's just blowing up. And Paul learns how to just be a good gospel minister in a church for a few years while he's doing it. I love that. You want to train up people to be gospel ministers? We're going to talk about it more tonight. You've got to actually get them to do it not just sit in a classroom and talk about it. So Paul does it. And then what happens? They're listening to the Spirit and fasting and worship, and the Spirit says, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas for the work that I've called them to do. And then they pray and fast some more, and then they commission them out into the work. And they give away their leaders. It's crazy. We in the church, when we get a guy or, or, or a team or a woman or whatever who really do a good job, we just go like, we can't lose these people. And we make our church bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger around those people. And what does the early church do? They go, we got to get rid of these people. They've got more work to do. There's more people to reach. 
And it's they're listening to the Spirit. When the Spirit says, you know, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas, they don't go like, oh, come on, Lord, are you kidding me? I mean, what would we do without them? How in the world are we ever going to manage if those guys are gone? We don't know how to do this. No, they knew how to do it because they were the church. They were the gospel people. They were missionaries. They knew it. And this just happens over and over and over again. And that's the third thing. If your church doesn't have a multiplication mindset, don't expect the gospel to expand outward. Because that's all about multiplication. Too many of our churches have an addition mindset. We're just basically trying to get more people to show up instead of we're trying to equip more people to go out so that more people get the privilege of leading more people to Jesus, discipling them up and seeing more churches started. It's a lot that I could go on, but I'm out of time. So um, I, I will say this last thing just to, to encourage you, I hope. Maybe it was a bit not so encouraging, but I, I hope it would be because I want, to, I want you to hear this. Jesus can do far more than you could ever ask or imagine. And he wants to do it through you. And he wants to do it through every person in your church. That's the normative. The normative is that every follower of Jesus is empowered by the Spirit to believe the gospel, to proclaim the gospel, to live the gospel, and to be a missionary sent by Jesus to see places transformed with the gospel. That's the norm. That's the norm. And I just want to give you hope. The gospel is the power of God to save. That means they can even, God can even save our churches. And I think he wants to. I think a missionary saying is, Oh, Father, let Jesus receive the rewards of his suffering through the church being faithful to his commission. What if our church was just every day going, I just want Jesus to receive the rewards of his suffering for what he did for me. Do you pray with me that God might make that possible? Father, we are helpless and hopeless without Jesus. I pray, first of all, that you would lead us to repentance in any place of our ministry or life where we trusted in something other than the power of the gospel to save. If we've trusted in our abilities or our programs or in our ability to mobilize people with good words and fine-sounding arguments, I pray that we would not trust in that any longer, but we would trust solely in the name of Jesus and the power of his resurrection and in the indwelling of your spirit to enable us to do this work. And I pray for these pastors and leaders here that they would believe less in themselves and their people and more in Jesus and his power. Teach us to realign our life in light of the gospel and around the mission you're sending your people to. And I pray that you would give us the privilege of seeing the normative of people getting saved. If that wouldn't be strange to us, it would be expected. That we'd get the joy of seeing people leave our churches as gospel missionaries sent by us to see the gospel go everywhere. And that would be normal and not strange. I pray we wouldn't have to get people up on a platform to, to kind of give a demonstration of what we should all be doing because we'll all have them in our church. 
Help us to be that people, but we need your help. Please pour out your power to enable us to do this in Jesus' name. Amen.